0: way to do this.
1: Let me show you a better way.
0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spear, Go with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is uh, Thursday, June twenty seventh, two thousand thirteen, and this is episode eleven hundred and fifty eight of the Survival Podcast. Got a good one to, for you today. I got a uh, guy on the line here named Matthew, Matthew Miller from uh, Hubbard Research, and we're going to take a different stab at prepping today. How to measure? How to quantify your prepping? Uh, subject I never would have really thought of until Matthew approached me. He works for a company. That's what they do. They quantify risk-based decisions. So, for instance, when the Marines were trying to determine how many fuel points that they needed in Iraq, and they were thinking about, you know, what if we're attacked? What if this? What if that? And and do we have enough fuel in place? They were able to actually do an analysis of that situation and, and make some interesting discoveries that I'll let Matthew tell you about. And how that relates to you, and how that relates to individual preparedness, along, and then how it re- relates to preparedness at the, the the macro view, the big view, the 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 big risk factors, something like an economic collapse. It's going to be an interesting discussion. I invite you to join us. We'll get to it as soon as I take care of our sponsors in our housekeeping sponsor of the day, number one, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Now, what are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Berkey water filtration systems. I know that's shocking that the Berkey guy would sell Berkeys, but he does. But why get your Berkey from Jeff? I mean, I think that most people in the preparedness world know that one of the best systems you can get to make sure that your water is clean and good to drink every day or during a disaster is a Berkey. It has no real moving parts. It really can't fail. It looks beautiful. It works a very, very long time on a set of filters. If you put extra filters in it, it works really, really fast. Uh, it's affordable, though there's a little bit of a cost on the startup, but the long-term cost per gallon crushes anything else out there. So the Berkey is a great decision, but why get your Berkey from the Berkey guy? What are you, you going to do, go get it from the non-Berkey guy? Why the heck would you buy a Berkey from anybody but the Berkey guy? There's only one. The amazing Jeff Gleason, the guy that even when I put him on a discussion panel was doing customer service in the middle of my discussion panel. He may not get on another discussion panel, but uh, I really, really appreciate the level of customer service that he provides. Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason, you can find him, Berkey Systems, and other great things for your preparedness like Mountain House Foods at directive21.com. That's directive, D-I-R-E-C-T-I-V-E, 21.com, so the number 21, not the word 21, directive 21.com. Next up today, walk um, the Free State Project. I was thinking walking to freedom because it's kind of hand-in-hand hand there. Uh, the Free State Project is the one sponsor on this show that's not really a sponsor. They are sponsored by the show. And it goes the other way around. Where everybody else has to pay to be here, i put them on our show for the past year and a half now, uh, and we will continue until the end of this year to, to recommend them to people and to get the word out for them at no cost at all. Uh, the Free State Project is a group of people that are moving to New Hampshire. And they're moving to New Hampshire with the intent of making New Hampshire the freest state in the Union. These are people from all over the nation who have just tired of tyranny and gotten together to work as a community to move their state toward greater liberty. If you're not going to move to New Hampshire, I understand. I'll give you an alternative of that in just a moment. But you can still help them. Because a fight for liberty anywhere is a fight for liberty everywhere. So check out the Free State Project. Check out Fest. Check out their uh, uh, Liberty Fest. Check out everything that they're doing and see if there's some way you can get involved. Because, again, fight for liberty anywhere is a fight for liberty everywhere. And I believe the Free State Project and the work they're doing in New Hampshire is important to every part of our country. Okay, I said I would give you an alternative. Let's say you're like, I just can't do it. I can't go to New Hampshire. I'd like to. I, those people up there are great, but I, I can't go there. And um, But I'm really, like, tired of living in California, or I'm really tired of living in a place like Illinois. Do you know that this is a republic with 50 member states and that there are other options? Sometimes freedom is just across the state line. It will change everything about the way you live your life, how much money you have to give to your state-level masters, etc. If you're interested in finding a new home, a new place to live, that's more in line with what you believe and you understand that voting with your feet is the last act of defiance in a republic. Then get on over to walkingtofreedom.com and learn more about that. Check out the establishment board and look at the vision statements and the ideas and the concepts behind Walking to Freedom. And if you're thinking, well, you know what, Jack? I love my state. I love living here. I think this is a great liberty-oriented state. Get on over there. Your state probably has a board of its own then and the, the not the naughty list side. And there's probably people that want to consider your state. And they want to know about your state. And they want to know what it's like there. And whenever you talk about people getting out of New York or getting out of California, you know what they say, well, all of those people that left there are going to come here and turn it into what they left. That's the entire point of Walking to Freedom, to avoid that, to help people make the right decisions and to move to places that are already more in line with what they're looking for. Walkingtofreedom.com is our last act of defiance in this republic. It's our last chance to shift the dynamic from tyranny to liberty walkingtofreedom.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode. To learn more, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members or the Member Support Brigade banner that you'll see there, and you can read all about it, how it'll save you tons of money, and how you'll be supporting the show if you get involved. If you are in the military, if you're a law enforcement or Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, or if you're a first responder like a paramedic or an EMT or a firefighter, you qualify for a service discount as long as you email me before, not after you join, before, not after you join, with service discount in the subject line and tell me in two or three sentences who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service, and with that, I have the housekeeping wrapped up today, and it's my good fortune to uh, introduce Mr. Matthew Miller. M-I-L-L-A-R. I did not misspell his name. That's not the first time I've seen that name spelled that way, but that's how his name is spelled, of, uh, who is a manager of consulting operations at Hubbard Division Decision Research. He's here to talk to us today about how we can actually calculate and measure anything. And with that, hey, Matthew, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast.
1: Thanks, Jack. Great to be here. So you want to
0: come on today and talk about how to measure anything for preppers. Um, and you call that information value and, and you know, just kind of starting off and off, it's kind of something we've never talked about at all, which is why I was actually happy to have you on. I like going into new stuff, but what the hell is information value and how does it tie into prepping?
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, just, so just to give a little background, um, I work for a company called Hubbard decision research and our, uh, CEO wrote a book called How to Measure Anything, <laughs> and I've noticed that as a topic recently you've been um, focused on, you know, not um, not prepping for the the super unlikely event, right? So that kind of caught my ear, and I thought, well, I'll see if uh, I'll see if Jack wants to talk about that in a little bit more depth because that's really a lot of what we talk about has to do with that. So, information value. Essentially, uh, anytime you're making a decision, okay, you're going to have uncertainty, right? So if you're making a decision between A and B, say um, between buying a generator and putting in a hugel bed, okay, you have a, a set of unknown costs that are going to be associated with that, and you have a set of unknown benefits. Now, to the extent that you could make the wrong decision. Um, there 's going to be an information value, so essentially if you decide something that where the benefits outweigh the costs okay and um, it it 's a more beneficial decision than the other decision then you 've made the right choice but if it 's switched, if you choose one thing and it was actually uh, gives you less benefits, then you've made the wrong decision you know that 's what we would call the wrong decision, and an information value essentially is the cost of being wrong times the chance of being wrong. So that's what we mean by information value. So that's an interesting
0: way to put it. So the the chance of being wrong times the cost of being wrong. So what what, what exactly do you mean by that?
1: Well, so let's say you pick the generator, okay? And let's say that... um, Let's say that that was actually the wrong, so when I want to say the wrong pick. Like, imagine scenarios in your mind, okay? There are going to be times where the generator is more useful than the hugel bed. Do you follow me? Sure. And there are going to be other times where the hugel bed is more useful than the generator. So if you're thinking about, um, you know, the food that you get from the hugel bed, maybe the exercise and the enjoyment that you get from working it, uh, sense of accomplishment from pointing it in, food security if, you know, the shit at the fan. Uh, those are all benefits from the hugelbed. Now, the, the generator also has a stream of benefits. If your power goes out, I mean, that's the obvious one. So, but there's a lot of uncertainty in both cases because you don't know how many times your power is going to go out in the future. If you did, then you could map out with certainty which was the better choice. But because you don't know that, you you there's just a chance that one is better than the other. So say... Say you pick the generator, okay and say that was actually the wrong pick if you could somehow look into the future say that was the wrong pick forty percent of the time well information value means that chance forty percent times the cost of how wrong you were in different scenarios so in each uh, each scenario you can imagine there's going to be a different cost uh, like if you starved to death because you didn't put in the google bed you know that's a very large cost, but that's only going to happen in a and uh, you know a, a fraction of a percent of the time, right? So I mean that's a very unlikely. So because it's such a small probability, you got to offset the fact that there's a high cost with that very very small probability. So that's what we mean by the the cost of being wrong times the chance of being wrong. You got to think of both. <clears throat> and so you know you've talked about like EMPs, okay? Um, recently, a, a bunch in the show. Am I right? I mean, it's
0: yeah it's absolutely, because people are like obsessed with it,
1: yeah, so I mean that's a pretty good example of a of a uh, an occurrence that would have a, a a high cost associated with it if you didn't make certain preps, um, although you know we can come back to that in a little bit because um, really you have to focus on decisions that matter right so if if your decisions don't affect um, your outcome, then there's no use worrying about it but that aside, uh, even if you could do something about it, well, there's a high cost of not doing that thing or, or the way we would th- think of it as, as being wrong in terms of your decision and prepping. But the, the likelihood of it is very low. So you've got to multiply those two together. And it's actually there's actually a formula that's been around uh, for about 60 years um, and it's used widely like in oil and gas exp- uh, exploration and production, E&P, um, uh, NASA uses it in, uh, in their models. Um, uh, and basically, um, you can calculate what an information value is in, in dollar amounts. So you can actually get a dollar value for uncertainty on, on a variable.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and, and then how does that, how does that meet real world application, for a guy that, in the end, says, look, I know my power can freaking go out, and I'm just trying to figure out what to do about it?
1: Well, I, so I'd say that the um, the application it boils down to um, having the correct focus. So obviously you're not going to build up um, – like we build these big models. So our, our clients tend to be very large organizations. Um, most of them we have NDAs. We have some of them we don't, so I can talk about a couple of them. Um, but they tend to be very large. They tend to be multi-million-dollar investments or decisions, and we build a model for that. So obviously, we're not going to build a model about whether you have a, a cheeseburger or a steak for, for dinner, right? Because, I mean, it just doesn't matter. And and even something like building a Hoogelbed or better generator, that's probably not worth building a model because it's just not worth the effort. But you can take the same principles and some of the some of the conclusions that we draw from from our activities and apply it to prepping, and and then for big decisions, okay, like should I buy this house, something where there's, say, more than ten thousand dollars on the line, then you could actually build a model for it, uh, or um, should I move to Texas, or should I move to Florida, right? Uh, again, that kind of using the example of the, um, what is it called the uh, walk into freedom? Yes. So with, with a decision that, that is that large, you can you can build a model and the model will tell you essentially where your information value is, where you need to reduce your uncertainty. And that way, see, most people when they have uncertainty, they just kind of get flustered and throw their hands up in the air and, and say, well, you know, I just got to use my intuition. I just got to make the best choice I can. Part of that, you know, part of everybody's decision is we're going to, try to figure out as much stuff as we can. We're going, to, we're going to do as much research as we can. But information value comes in with these specific investments when there's there's certain variables that are very important to measure and others that don't matter at all. So it helps you focus where to measure. The, uh, the other practical application, and this applies for everybody, is that you want to be careful that you don't get too focused on things that don't matter at all. So there's something we call the measurement inversion. Okay, The measurement inversion means that people, and this is something that we've seen across all the industries that we serve, people will measure exactly the variables that have the lowest information value. So they focus all of their attention on the things that have... The least relevance to their decision, okay, and that's obviously applicable to prepping, because if you're focused on an event like the EMP that has almost no chance of occurring, um, and you're leaving out all of these other things that are that can happen, that will happen, that's that's a measurement inversion. Well, so let me give you an example. Um, about ten years ago, we did well, actually. The owner of our company uh, did an analysis for the Marine Corps on forecasting fuel in the battlefield. So, at the time, what the Marines were focused on was the chance of enemy engagement. That was their variable that that they thought had a lot of uncertainty. Do you follow me? Yep. Okay. And they were they were uh, they were a bit frustrated because this was a relatively difficult thing to predict. This was in Iraq. Um, now, do you think the Marines generally spend a lot of time? When when they were on the ground in Afghanistan and Iraq, do you think they spent a lot of time thinking about and predicting enemy engagement?
0: That's tough to say because I mean, y- you would think that they would that would be the first and foremost thing on their mind. Exactly. And, exactly. But it, would be, but, but it would also be uh, something far more delegated to the individual unit than overriding command because the situation is ground dependent.
1: That's true. Yeah, that that's true. But, but I think my point would be that the, that, that tends to be where their focus is. So okay. while the, the general might sit back and, and think, or the, or the planning committee might be thinking about um, how much, you know, how much fuel do we need? And they might not be focused on um, battlefield engagement. Still, the culture is such that that is a primary focus, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's something that gets a, a great deal of focus and effort is already dedicated to, to predicting this in that organization. So, well, we built them a model with all sorts of different variables. Uh, chance of enemy engagement is one of them, but also things like types of vehicles, hours of operation uh, under normal or other circumstances, um, fuel efficiency on their, on their vehicles, and uh, both uh, miles per gallon and like an idle burn, number of fuel depots, convoy routes, rates of burn for generators, get all sorts of things, okay? There were 52 variables that had uncertainty in all. So this was a big model. Um, well, the variable with the, the highest information value was actually convoy routes. Okay. And, and most importantly in there was fuel efficiency on gravel roads versus paved. So that's a great example of a measurement inversion because... Uh, they were focused on one thing, and that's why they hired us, actually, was to help them measure chance of enemy engagement. Well, it turned out that that had no, uh, no information value in the model, zero. What really mattered was uh, comparing fuel efficiency on gravel roads versus paved. Okay. See,
0: I, I have an issue with that because you told me, and you told everybody here, that it's chance of being wrong times cost of being wrong. Well, if you screw up and don't predict engagement... Your chance of being wrong times your cost of being wrong is pretty damn high.
1: <laughs> well, that's true, but de- remember their decision was forecasting fuel, so they were wasting okay. lots of energy on these fuel depots, guarding fuel depots. Right? You can lose. Oh, I see what you you're saying now. Okay, highs, guarding fuel depots. And what if you don't need that fuel? They were vastly oversupplying their fuel because the, the chance of running out of fuel was unacceptable. So I the see. decision that we were concerned with was forecasting fuel and the variable that but your response was perfect in a way because uh, again our, our focus tends to go to the bombastic things but we have to ask ourselves what is the decision what are we what are we actually trying to do here what is what is the decision that we're um, focused on and and what are we going to affect with this decision so, so how in- does
0: how does it, this variable factor into it the 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 reality of what even taking the action will do should the negative action occur. What I mean by that is one of the reasons I tell people don't get all wrapped up in EMP is because they think they're gonna build a little Faraday cage and throw their transistor radio and hand gear in there and maybe uh drag a chain off the back of their bumper and ground their car and that if there's a big EMP that their devices will survive. And the reality is in a a significant EMP, the type of thing that would actually do what people are afraid of, most of that equipment would be scrambled anyway. And secondly, even if you had it, you wouldn't have anything to do with it. So there's these times where, yeah, you acknowledge that this issue can occur, but the reactive measure is insufficient. And therefore, you have to find other things to do to deal with even that extreme.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I would I would say that that's what that points out is when you're making decisions, you, you need to also incorporate whether your actions are going to uh actually create a benefit. Do You follow me? So you, you Yeah, or in oh, Jack
0: Spirico language, just because somebody told you it works on the internet doesn't mean it freaking works.
1: Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and thinking about the, the Faraday cage as an example. Okay, you build this thing, and then uh, you get an MP and sort of your in some sense your dreams come true, but then, what is your actual utility at that point? How much is your utility improved because you went through all this effort so I mean I think this brings up a, a an important um, point, which is that we kind of need to separate out um, uh, fantasy which is which is for fun with reality like like I think of building a Faraday cage is kind of fun, you know, and, and thinking about sure. surviving an EMP, that's fun. Um, but that's not our most pressing concern when it comes to survival. Uh, I mean, I could make an argument that our most pressing concern is health. Actually. I mean, take me as an example. So a year and a half ago, I lived in, uh, Orange County, California, and I worked at a hedge fund and I worked these hellish hours. I, I hated Orange County. Um, I didn't have any land, lived in a condo, um, uh, didn't like the culture, couldn't have a garden. If I left my trash outside my garage, I got a note on my door the next day. I mean, if I left it out for one night because it smelled and the trash was the next day, the trash had to go out in the morning, that kind of place, you know. Now I live in, in rural Wisconsin, I got five acres, and I see my kids thriving uh, and I'm I'm just so much happier, you know. Um, so tying to the prepping here is, uh, what are some of the leading causes for lack of survival? I'd, I'd say it's stress and being overweight. You know, and those are those are those aren't fun things to think about. It's not like building a Faraday cage, but um, you know that's that's really where the rubber meets the road is. You know, what are you doing to get yourself into a healthy situation? That's a very important question, I think. For for people to be asking themselves in the prepping community.
0: Here's a, a concept that maybe you just haven't been listening long enough to, to have heard me uh, extrapolate and everything that I've built as far as, um, what people should prepare for in the order in which they should begin their preps. When people come and they go, I don't know what to do. I just figured all this out. I think I'm screwed and I need to start somewhere. And it's an inverse relationship. That's probably a word you'll like, right? Inverse relationship. Yep. Probability of disaster has an inverse relation with impact scale based on the probability that the individual will experience that disaster in their lifetime. And what (laughs) I mean is if we go and we say, well, what disaster affects just you or you and your family, your next door neighbor, other than the fact that they might care as an empathetic human being, doesn't really care. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really affect the temperature of the water in their pool, the balance Mm -hmm. of their 401k or whatever. And that would be, you get in a car wreck and are severely injured or are killed. You lose your job. Yep. You have a fire that burns your house down but not your neighbor's house down. Uh, a tree falls through your roof. Uh, the individual level disaster, the lowest impact scale that we measure by number of individuals affected, is the, the one with the highest probability that any individual will experience it in their lifetime. And when you go in a crowd of people like I do and you speak on this and you say, Everybody here that's ever lost a job in your life, raise your hand. About half the people in the audience raise their hand. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And then you say, okay, everybody put your hand down. And you go, anybody here that's ever lost a a critical member of their family to illness or disease or had them go down for more than a month or two due to, to, to serious illness or disease, raise your hand. And by that time, almost every human being in the audience has raised their hand. Those are individual disasters. Then you say, everybody here who's ever been irradiated by a nuclear bomb, raise your hand. And you wait for like the three seconds of awkward silence before somebody starts laughing. Right. Right. But it makes the point that that giant, huge disaster has the least probability of being something that affects you. But then we have to acknowledge the other side of the inverse relationship. It has the greater consequence. And what it sounds to me is like is you're formulating that concept that, that TSP is actually built on.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, I, right. I, what I'm saying is I'm kind of interested in, in building it into a model where you would... Where sure, you're, you're
0: putting put numbers it. behind the concept. You're
1: putting numbers behind it, and, and you're saying, okay, um, let's think about the factors of survival, uh, food, water, shelter, uh, protecting yourself.
0: Energy security. And, yeah, yeah. And,
1: okay, energy security, right. And you put those into a model, and you say... Um, how much will each of my actions positively affect each of these? And if there's, and if there's various uh, disasters, which of these, you know, um, how much of each of these am I going to need, essentially? Or what kind of systems am I going to need to keep myself alive? I mean, if, the, if we're talking about survival, you know, that's really, I think, the most logical way to come at it. And so I've started working on, on something like that and, and trying to incorporate our tools for information value into that model. Um, the health and sanitation one is, is one that keeps popping out at me, though, just because, um, you know, that's it's, it's, not, it's not glamorous. But I think, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the non-glamorous dangers actually fall into that bucket.
0: Well, they're the ones that kill the most
1: people. Right, exactly.
0: The, the most people that were killed in in Haiti from the earthquake were not killed because a cinder block wall fell on top of their head. Right. No disrespect to those who were, because there were people that were killed because cinder block walls fell down on top of them. Right. The majority of people that died in Haiti died of various diseases in the aftermath, such as dysentery.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and, and others that were caused mostly through contaminated water. And, this, and then, so you got, you got health and sanitation right there. Right. And then right. you would say the next thing that probably killed the most people was rioting, looting, crime, people looking at So security. Right. So even right. though shelter seems to be the immediate issue, because their shelters fell down, what killed people was health, sanitation, and security lapses.
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. I'm, um, I'm going to Kenya in two weeks. Um, this is actually one of the clients I can talk about. Uh, it's a uh, International Livestock Institute, um, and uh, we're working on a, an intervention in the Horn of Africa, essentially. Um, and the idea there is to measure resiliency. Um, so, in just preparing for this trip, you know, <laughs> I basically was prepping because <laughs> when you go to a developing world. Uh, country um you know you got to think about things like well what happens if the electricity goes out you know i need a headlamp um what happens if i uh um you know wind up in a situation where um there's a lack of sanitation or you know there's a much more there's a much greater exposure to disease so the basic meds that you need like you know uh uh Houston I mean, I, my my dop kit is full of full of meds, you know. And basically, it, it 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 highlighted to me like, well, gosh, if we actually had a a scenario where some, you know, there was a major effect, preparing for a, a trip to a developing world country is actually a pretty good approximation in, in some ways to um, what you'd need to survive without the all of the, the benefits that we have of living in a developed country, right? If those went away, so it was kind of an interesting um, interesting framework for, for, for me to think about, like, how similar that was. The other thing with uh, resiliency, I wanted to, to mention this. Um, resiliency and, and permaculture seem very closely linked to me. So, you know, we're trying to define what resiliency is, and then we're trying to measure how... Um, different things feed into that, and uh, and different things um, come out of that, right? Because there's there's both. There's certain things that feed into resiliency, and then there's certain things that come out of resiliency. So, and there's certain things that you that you know when there is resiliency, you're going to see it, right? Do you, do you yes. know what I mean by that? So that's yes. those are the kind of questions we ask. Like we just had we've been having these rainstorms up here um, for the past week, and um, one of the local towns got. Completely flooded. More than half the, the houses got flooded. We've got 20 inches of rain in like 36 hours or something. But you know, because we live where we live, there's not a whole lot of doubt that that town is going to spring back pretty quickly. In another place, wouldn't necessarily be the case, right? So that's that's what I, that's what I think of when I hear resilience is. Um, it, is how quickly can you can you spring back in the face of adversity, but it's funny if you look at the twelve principles of permaculture, how they seem to, to to basically just you know set you up for that for being resilient.
0: Yeah. Now, in your your notes that I have for today's show, you mentioned within all of this being calibrated. What do you, what do you mean by that?
1: Okay, calibration. Yeah, that's a Thanks for bringing that up. Calibration is um probably the funnest thing we do and I know <laughs> I'm not sure how much people will enjoy all the, the talk about probability that we've been uh you know, sometimes things get a little bit uh I guess I can get a little bit nerdy uh when I talk about things. So calibration is really uh fun though. Um and useful as a standalone skill. It's part of our process but it's a it's a standalone skill. Basically, uh individuals are Extremely overconfident. And so calibration means being able to correctly assess your uncertainty. So it's be able to look at a situation and say, how certain or uncertain am I of this, this thing happening? Or what, what is the range of possible values here? What am I 90% sure of the range of possible values? If you can do that and, and you're right, as many times as you predict, that's called being calibrated. Now, almost nobody is naturally calibrated. In fact, um, meteorologists and bookies are the only two professions that we've found uh, are, people are consistently calibrated. Um, you, you have to—you basically have to—you um, have to have your job sort of depend on giving correct estimates all the time, or or have a direct sort of monetary uh, Tied to it, that seems to be the the key but it's it 's a very important uh, skill to have actually and and becoming calibrated was something that you know really helped me in my life in the past uh, year year and a half um, so the tie in here I guess to prepping would be um, again going back to how likely are certain events, how likely is an EMP well that there's actually data for that right so you can um, uh, you can actually pretty easily get a likelihood of that um, I mean we know there was one in the, I want to say the early 1800s does that sound right?
0: Now, yeah, but now you're moving into the world of a CME, so that's a natural occurrence. It's actually more likely to me than an EMP. An EMP would be man-made. Oh,
1: i Okay, yeah, I I meant CME. Nation
0: in the high atmosphere of a of a nuclear device would be like an EMP, or
1: something, right?
0: Or, or, or yeah, or a nation-on-nation nation, nation group on, force yeah. military attack. A CME is coronal mass ejection.
1: And the results are pretty much the same, but okay, yeah, I got my way. acronyms mixed up. So it's, yeah. it, it, we have, data, so we don't have data on a on a uh, EMP. So that would be a place where a, being calibrated would be important, because you're yeah. actually relying on sort of your own expert analysis and intuition to assign a probability. Okay, and that's what most people can't naturally do well. So if you if you test, say I, say I asked you Jack like um, ten questions. And I said, uh, give me your 90% confidence interval on on how likely this is or what the range of this value is. Well, it turns out that if you're like most people, you'd only get four four of those questions correct, where the actual value would fall in your range. So if I asked you, like, um, uh, what's a good example? Um, What is the uh, world record speed for a steam locomotive? Okay? And And I want you to give me a range. That you are 90% confident contain the right answer. Most people, when they start out, they only have a 40% chance of being right. So that just means that we're always overconfident. We're always giving ranges that are too narrow. Or if we're saying we're 90% certain of something being true, we're actually a lot less, 60% or less. Okay? So, um, so an, an EMP would be something where being calibrated would, would be a, uh, a skill that would be useful or any other sort of, um, disaster scenario where you're going to rely on your own intuition rather than data. A CME, which is the coronal, uh, mass ejection, that's something we actually have data on. So we can look back and say, okay, we've had one event in the past 200 years that, um, that, uh, created a, well, I mean, is it fair to say that that would, that would knock out the modern grid? What's that? Do you think it's fair to say that 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 uh, C- that CME in the 1800s would would knock out our grid?
0: I think that's highly debatable based on who you ask. The okay. intrinsic wisdom is yes. Okay. The a lot of the electrical engineers that I've spoken to say that. The reason people think of that as being the case is because things like the, the telegraph lines that were strung up at the time, uh, some of them burned. Right, right? They basically right. burned and right. melted off the insulation. But what they pointed out to me is the system was not built the way – it was just basically lines hanging up on a pole with two ends. There was nowhere near the level of shielding, grounding, redundancy, resiliency built into those lines that there is into the grid today. So there's a lot of engineers that say no. But then you also look at something like, okay, well, one dumbass out in New York, New Mexico changed out one part and shut down 600,000 people for two days, and they say he didn't even do anything wrong. So there's an inconsistency there. So that's, that's, you, you know, I know you say there's nothing that's not quantifiable, but from the data that you have there, it's difficult to quantify. Because on one hand, you have professionals that design and maintain these grids saying no.
1: Right. And on the other
0: hand, you have evidence. That that indicates otherwise that they're
1: overconfident. So I'm not sure. That yeah, that's right. That's a very interesting point. So you kind of have two uncertainties. One is the uncertainty of a CME that could be capable of it. So you, you could say there's one event in the 1800s and one event in I think there was another smaller one in the early 1900s. Yeah. So you could say okay, there's been two events in 200 years that we know of. And from that, it's very easy to calculate. There's an, that means that the that 90% uh, chance of an event in any given year, that the, the comp, you can be confident that it's only between a 1 in 300 and a 1 in 30 chance. Okay? So the statistics on that are very easy. But there's yep. another part to this, which you brought up, which is then what's the likelihood if, if we had such an event – that the good would actually go down and that's where again being calibrated would be important um, now <clears throat> the more knowledge and then we, we have, have to put
0: other variables in there right okay so we say okay that seemed like a really big one mm-hmm. was it a really big one good point you know point. was that was that really a big or is big much bigger what what is big because if we go back just a little further before that when there was a big CME the only thing that it did here was really cool northern lights. Because right. there were no electronics to be affected, <laughs> right. so nobody knew. Right. Oh, look at that. It's further south than normal. That's cool. I mean, that was the whole thing. And yeah. they thought, you know, God was beating somebody up or something. They they didn't even know what it was. You right. can you go back right. another couple hundred years after before that. Right. Right. right, right.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and um, na- nature, I think, generally speaking, nature, natural disasters and, and natural occurrences um operate on a log scale and what i mean by that is uh, like if you look at earthquake sizes um the frequency of the frequency of events uh the larger events that you might predict would happen less often actually happen more often than than like if you were using like a normal distribution okay it's okay. a lo- it's a log distribution so i mean to your point we know of one huge event that happened uh, 180 years ago or whatever, but there was probably an even larger one uh, within the last 1,000 years.
0: Right? Which, again, no one would have cared about at the time, yeah. other than there's some cool lights going on in the sky. There's, if there's no electrical grid, unless you get something that's like you know a supernova somewhere Nova that phase. blows the atmosphere off or something, <laughs> yeah. a CME is just no one cares. We only care in the days of electronics.
1: Right,
0: right, right. So, like, there's another thing we could look at that you could probably get lots of numbers and start to come up with some really interesting equations from, which would be the economic situation.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, that's that's another example where... um, We know what's owed, we know where it's owed to, we
0: know how much we're going to owe that we don't already owe. I mean, we have hard numbers on that.
1: Yeah, I mean the economic situation is a really a really good example. Um, I think that uh, like when you're talking about um, like like a bond market, for example. I mean, my my previous work was in this area, so you know it's an area of expertise for me. Um, and there's you know there's no doubt that um, that well, let me just ask you before we we go into this. What can you tell me a little bit more? What what you meant in terms of Looking at the economic
0: situation? Looking at, let's say, our economic future is a nation. Uh-huh. would be the uh-huh. easiest thing to do to say, okay, this nation owes X right now. We've already committing to, committed to spending Y tomorrow and, uh-huh. and th- into the future. The economic projections for the GDP and output in the best case scenario are Z. Uh-huh. And as we start to put all of those together, we get into a pretty black picture pretty fast about right. our future over the next 20 years. It's 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 almost mathematically impossible that we don't get into some sort of having to do a major reset with the currency to even try to hold it together because well between now and and, and 2050 we know that we're going to have to spend about 150 trillion dollars we're not going to have and at right. some point yeah. that number yeah. just it breaks the camel's back it can't go on forever like this
1: yeah and and I mean that's a that's an interesting observation from the perspective, for me from the observation of or from the perspective of uncertainty so b- being if you're calibrated you you should be able to assign relatively good probabilities to certain events so so for me like when you ta- i think what you're talking about essentially is the bond market so uh, unfunded liabilities right and and sort of government debt in general yeah, um, that's
0: part. I mean, that's part of it. That's that's the the government bond market, but that's so interconnected to every other aspect of finance. It's it's kind of hard to isolate it. That's just
1: oh yeah one place well, where the big,
0: unraveling can begin because yeah, the bonds are the currency. When people say, well, I don't want to be in bonds because uh, you know if the government can't pay its debt, I'd rather have cash. Well, if the government can't pay its debt on the bond, your cash is worthless
1: too. Yeah, I mean the the bond market is the big dog in the room. There's no question about that. So wherever the bond market goes, I mean everything else is going to be affected, without question. Um, now, to say, this is just a subtext, and you don't have to put this on the air, but um, to say bond markets and cash are the same, I, I, would, I, I guess I'd put a little distinction on that. And again, this is... This well, is a, well,
0: hold on. Hold on. Let me explain what I mean. Okay, the bond market for a corporate bond, a junk bond, a bond by a state, uh, lowercase, a bond by a uh, municipality, no, it's not cash. Um, the United States bond for the U.S. government, if the government defaults on those, then it is the same as cash because oh, the only okay, thing backing yeah. the So it's at yeah. the, if you want to get the top level with bonds, then then that's what I'm saying. U.S. government bonds and cash are the same thing because the day the government can't pay the bond, the cash is worthless. The day that Detroit can't pay its bond, yeah, it has ripple effects, but it doesn't really affect the, the, the A Lincoln in your wallet.
1: Yeah, I would still make a distinction, though, because I, I think that, um, so if we default, then I'd agree with you, but I I think if we inflate, then there's a distinction, because if you're locked into a 30-year bond, and all of a sudden we're sitting at 20% inflation, your bond's going to be a piece of uh, dog doo-doo, you know what I mean, because you're locked yeah. into it. So the value of a bond, especially when it's got a 3% coupon, which is, you know, what 30-year coupon, the 30-year coupon is right now, if all of a sudden your inflation rate's 20%, you're screwed, you know? Whereas if you're in a bill, then if there's an inflation rate of 20%, well, the government's going to be paying more than that on their bills. You follow me? So uh, you can, you know, it rolls over every day. So that I think of as cash a bond i think so like i think you had a caller um who was talking about like a uh a a, a a savings bond and he asked about whether it was you know worth cashing out of or or whatever that if it was a if it was a large amount of money for that individual like most of their net worth or most of their say say it was an older guy okay and um and it was like most of his savings from his whole life well then, a, then a bond is not the same as cash because if we get inflation, that guy's screwed because he's locked into a three uh, percent yield and there's twenty percent inflation. So I mean, it's a again, it's just a little distinction, but um, we're getting away from the the, the basic point, which is. Um, but do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. So, but if there's a bond default, then yeah, you got bigger things to worry about. The currency is going to be completely screwed too. Then you're, if you're talking about a bond default, that's where like gold and silver come in, in my mind, you know? Correct. Um, Yeah. Well, Um, and there's,
0: but there's other ways this happens, right? So my belief is you're not going to see a true default. So looking at, and you can put probabilities and numbers along this. So the, the state of a nation going bankrupt has always looked pretty similar. first thing that happens is investors lose confidence and stop buying their 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 debt so now they have trouble turning over the existing debt so they begin to monetize the debt we're already into that stage. Over time, they realize they can only self-monetize for so long and print their own currency so long without excessive inflation and devaluation, so they need to attract outside money, so they begin to pay a higher interest rate in order to attract the money. As the interest rate climbs, eventually the debt becomes a cascade effect, so they're, in, in essence they're dumping gas on themselves while they burn, right. and then right. in the end eventually they can't pay that, so what they do is they don't default. They revalue. They hit a reset button at a 4-to-1. It's like a 4-to-1 reverse stock split or a 10-to-1 reverse stock split. (laughs) And it's exactly what they do. And because they're a nation, they can do it. And because we're the United States of America, we can definitely do it. The second we do it, the economic status of being the world leader is dead, right? And then being the world reserve currency is dead. And that happens the second they do it. But to me, we're on a path. Where well, that's the only logical thing eventually they'll be able to do is do a currency revaluation. And what they'll probably do to sell it to people, and this is a high, you know, it's one of these, you know, variable, how calibrated am I, I guess you would say. The easiest way to sell this to people is tell them we're going back to honest money, we're going to go to a gold and silver back currency, but the ratio is the thing there. So all right. of a sudden, gold is trading at $10,000 an ounce, in US, but what does $10,000 buy is the question.
1: Right, and it may not
0: buy any more than you know fifteen hundred bucks buys right now.
1: I think it's a I think it's a brilliant hypothesis. I mean, I think it's a lot more likely than um, you know most people are aware of. I think that in the hedge fund world, that's you know a a distinct uh, awareness of that possibility, which is one of the reasons why you saw so much uh, money flowing into that. You know, uh, particularly around two thousand eight. But, even up until about a year ago, um, yeah, I mean and and to, and to kind of go along your your uh, uh, hypothesis a little more, I guess I'd say we have some sort of canaries in the coal mine, and what I mean there is uh, japan, I mean the eurozone, so because what we're talking about is developed major world economies, right with, yeah. with a demographic problem. <laughs> Among other things, it's just like government's borrowing way too much money, okay? And Japan and, and Europe share those attributes with us and they're kind of further along the path, particularly Japan. So, I mean, I think, you know, this is a, this is a very interesting experiment that we've been on with, uh, you know, uh, fiat money and, uh, and, and now this demographic bulge we've had. I, I think you can make an argument that the fiat money worked really well as long as we were all growing and economic growth was booming it made sense that you could control your money supply so that you you know you weren't tied down to a limited supply of money because we were growing faster than the amount of money was growing well now well
0: it's a required growth scenario there has to be growth and there has to be growth at all levels, including including growth in population. And if you want to know the real motivation, other than some things they get to do to have greater oversight and control over all citizens, but the real motivation in 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 legalizing illegal immigrants right now, it's because we're in a we're in a demographic demographic basically plateau. Yeah. So they need population growth to turn the machine back on. And they think they can do it by, by legitimizing, you know, basically giving the nation a growth of 10 million citizens in a day. Now they won't have their citizenship because that'll never float, giving it to them immediately, but they'll have the obligations of citizenship, including taxation in a day. They'll be drawing from and returning to the system. So in the mind of the, the statistician politician, we can use this for phony growth so we can turn the machine back on
1: yeah again, a very insightful comment. I mean, I was gonna say, like, um you know this machine that we built wasn't built to go into reverse <laughs> right no
0: it wasn't even it wasn't even built to slow down
1: exactly, yeah, so this is where you know um the words that that we use were extend and pretend um in our fund that uh you know that that's really kind of where we're at is uh we just the two thousand and eight crisis alone was basically like. It's kind of like if you shoot a deer and it's a fatal wound, but you didn't get a clean shot, you know, and the poor thing, like, drags on for a couple miles before it dies. That's kind of like our economy right now. Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't laugh, yeah. but that's kind of what it's like. It's, you know, we're, i just say it's interesting. You know, we're in an interesting position where we've designed this monetary system and it sort of requires growth. And now we're throwing the car in reverse, and it's like the transmission's on the ground, and we're just kind of coasting along, hoping that it all works out well. You know. Let me explain to you where different. I think – because
0: this will go right with your model, where I think people get in trouble with this. This is how I explain this. So the person that looks at this Keynesian economic system, this fiat currency system – and by the way, I, 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 even, I even object to calling it fiat. And the reason I object to calling it fiat is fiat is backed by nothing but the nation's good faith. So a president or a king or an overlord says, this shall be. By fiat, this has value. Mm-hmm. Whereas our money is actually worse, right. right? If a fiat <laughs> currency fails, you just don't have money anymore. If our currency fails, we have a giant hole into which money, new money must go because it's backed by debt. So uh-huh. it's debt-backed versus a true fiat. But but in any event, when somebody looks at this, you call it a fiat hybrid, Right. And they see it for what it is, and they start to realize the debt trap, meaning that for every dollar produced, that dollar is due back plus interest. Therefore, I must produce more to pay the interest, which incurs its own interest. Therefore, it's mathematically impossible for the debt to be repaid. If we repaid all the debt, public and private, there would be no money. In fact, there would still be money left owed. When they get that, they go, this has to fail. And then they freak out, and they look at the debt clock and whatever, and they think, it's going to fail tomorrow, mm-hmm. and it's going to all die, and we're all going to die, ah, right? <laughs> and they don't realize that, that they're looking at it like it's Ebola. You get it,
1: you fall yeah, over, yeah, you're yeah.
0: dead, and the guy next to you is dead the next day, and the well, whole right. village is dead,
1: right? Right, and like going back to the, the deer analogy... It's, yeah. a it's a very big, big deer.
0: deer. Yeah. it's it's Well, here's what it is. It's cancer. Uh-huh. Okay? Uh-huh. And this is why right before a major catastrophe in an economic, like 2008, everything always looks great. And think of how many people in your life you've known, they look great. And the next thing they find, they have a tumor in their thigh bone. And mm-hmm. it takes them out. It looks very fast. But that cancer took a long time to metastase and do its work. And this economic situation we're in is a cancer. It's a very slow killer. And just like a cancer patient sometimes will go into, you would call it a false remission, right? And they look like they're on the mend and they look like, and the doctors even go, we can't find any more cancer cells. But when 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 the cancer comes back, it comes back worse and kills the patient. Mm-hmm. And that's how I see our economic system right now. It's a cancer and these little encouraging false recoveries are nothing but rem- temporary remissions but that disease is still now it's in the lymph system and it's just crawling everywhere and when you finally see it at the end you go what kind of cancer does he have they're going to be like body cancer right it's like what do you mean yeah. it's like he's got he's got liver spleen kidney foot head skin heart you know i mean blood he's got lymphoma he's got leukemia uh, and he's 500 pounds, and he's having a heart attack. We'll save him. <laughs> uh, no, you know, <laughs> you know, we can't even harvest the organs at that point. Right, Basically, yeah. we have a skeleton. What's left of a skeleton, you know, and even that's eaten away.
1: And yeah, and, and yeah.
0: that's why I see the. So can a nation just say, okay, we're broke, and then just not doing? No, they ha- We have to do something. And there's. This is the other part that, like, the, the people that go, you know, scream and freak out don't get. There's massive, massive intrinsic wealth in this nation. Yes, you know, yes. C The signing C wasn't written just because it sounded cool and hey, people get goosebumps. It was a, an understanding of the totality of the value of a yes. landmass like North America. You, so there's, there's wealth that. here,
1: there's something to start over with,
0: yep, but yep. God, it's going to suck.
1: You definitely see that living out in the country, like in Wisconsin. I mean, just the amount of crops that we produce is insane. And I mean, you brought up before on your show um, the natural gas boom. I I, tra- I traded commodities. I was a commodity portfolio manager. So, you know, that's kind of my area. And, um, and yeah, I've been kind of cheering you on there from the sidelines just because it, it really was a game changer. I mean, in 2005... I was very very pessimistic about the US our our basic chances of survival for the decade because you know the the energy situation as a country I just didn't see a way out yep. and the, the the natural gas boom really uh Shifted that in me. Uh, I mean, it, it's,
0: it's a big shot in the ass at chemotherapy. is what it is.
1: Yeah. It, yep. That's a good. That's a good way to put it. I mean, in the in the broader uh, <laughs> macro context, in terms of economics, that's a good way to put it. Yep. Um, getting back to sort of uncertainty, uh, and and also the, the the people who first discover this and then freak out. You know, there are things that you would expect to see before. I would expect to see the U.S. meltdown now. Some of them, you would it wouldn't give you much lead time, but you know, um, people. Well, one of them is Japan. I mean, the demographic situation there is is much much worse than ours, and and they have a, even more debt as a as a percentage of GDP. I mean, there've been people, but this is a, this is also a good point that people have been predicting uh, a bond crisis in Japan for 25 years. Correct, and it, has, and it hasn't happened. Um, like I said, the Eurozone, I, I assign both Japan and the Eurozone about a 1% chance of some sort of major default per month. So I okay. think that both of those are more likely than people think at this point. But even so, you have to realize that that doesn't mean that it ever necessarily happens. It's As I see it now, I think each of those has about a chance of 1% a month. So in any given year, there's, you know, maybe a a 15 to 20 percent chance that we'd see a major bond crisis in one of those countries. Um, If that happened, then I think the whole natural gas uh, creating a boom in the U.S., that kind of goes out the window because um, if there's a bond market crisis in any developed country, it's going to spread. So, you know, that's that's something that I would. Uh, keep an eye on is, is those two countries. If that doesn't happen, there's not too much I see that could derail the, the US quickly at this point. And by quickly, I mean, even in a couple of years, or even five years. Uh, the only other thing that I see as a possibility would be if there was a general war in the Middle East, because we're still tied enough to oil that it would, that would, uh, that would be the end game for, for all developed market bond markets, because it would be essentially we'd have a huge depression right and and it's like what you were saying about um with the cancer coming back yeah that would bring it back overnight essentially
0: i think the next time it comes back big i'm not talking about little blips dips i know i agree minor I agree. recessions but i think the next time it comes back big we're we're going to deal with this cancer and we're oh, i don't know exactly well, how it but yeah, we're going to yeah. deal with it. It's not going to be like 2008 where you can just pump a bunch of money in, bend helicopters in a couple billion here, a couple billion there, lend 16 billion out to the rest of the world, and then all of a sudden like you, you shoved enough money in the holes that they, they stop bleeding. I think the next time this comes back, it is that, that you know, uh, remission is the word when it goes away. I don't remember what it is when it comes back, but it's that return of the cancer. And I think at that point we have to deal with the, the, the macro layer at that point as a nation, And I think a lot of people are going to get really, really freaking hurt by that because – and this is the word I've always used to describe it. It's going to be an economic shift. And I think what – I think you're right. If you have Europe or Japan go completely off the rails and default, then it's a global – it's a global depression.
1: It becomes one very quickly. Very, very quickly.
0: If it's it's just Italy – uh, we'll get new pizzas it'll it'll work out but if it's a, a eu wide thing or something as big as Japan, it's huge. What I think happens though is that we have this rising block, this brick block Brazil Russia India China now South Africa's kind of joined as the gateway to to Africa because they're the developed nation where nobody's killing each other anymore uh, they can act for this this conduit for these four into Africa to develop that Those nations are cooperating enough. To, 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 to fulfill their, each their individual objectives. They're not becoming a new super state individually, but they're a very cooperative um, hegemon, new yeah. hegemon. Right. Equivalent to us when you put them all together. And they're rapidly accelerating past us. And the reason that we haven't had people basically say, you know, I'm not buying your freaking debt anymore, is as bad as we are, we're better than everything else for now. And two, everybody's still, they're in the lifeboats, but they're still attached to the ship. The USSSA, if it goes down, sucks everybody. Down. The boats, even if they're not tethered, they're not far enough away. Where when we go down, we're going to pull everybody so down with us. So what they're doing is they're they're rowing their ass off to get yeah. out of the suck, right? Yeah. And when they get out of the suck, then they just go, "Don't need you anymore." Yep. And yeah, I think it's going to be a very a very uh, peaceful global war it's the best way i can describe it. so
1: if you know, the next the next may, global
0: war will be an economic
1: war. it may or may not. i i would so i'd give this analogy. in the 30s, let's say the 30s to the 60s, the us became and surpassed the uk as the global economic leader. the same thing's happening now, only it's this block of countries mainly china, led by china. okay? the difference is the UK and the US were friendly, correct. So you know that gives me a little bit of pause because China, Russia, well, China and Russia are not particularly. I wouldn't call them friendly in the same way we were friendly with the UK. So um, you know that that gives me a little bit of uh, a little bit of pause. Um, again, I, I want to tie this back into um, calibration though and and, and certainty, which which is that um, we can sit here and talk about these these uh, points, and I think focusing on economics is probably uh, smart in terms of the most likely uh, shit it the fan kind of scenario. And I, we can get real
0: numbers to put into your equations.
1: Yeah, yep. But, you know, even though I say it's the most likely, in any given month or year, it's still not very likely. Whereas uh, there are other things that we can look at uh, that are much more likely, and that that either could kill us or could uh, you know create a a uh, significant uh, change in our life, right? In our severe of life.
0: severe weather pattern changes that cause excessive drought beyond what we saw two years ago. Right, um, A storm strafing the East Coast again, a la, the, the, what was it, Irene. Um, uh, these, these are things that we know that something like this is going to happen. The po- possibility of uh, serious mutant jumpings uh, within viruses that we're seeing now, certain coronaviruses that are causing SARS-like disorders. These are all things that have um, a totally different way to calculate the probability that they could affect us.
1: And and even the personal events like sickness or or um, you know sickness coming from stress you know yeah. I, again I think that's that's a huge one if you're in the audience and you're listening to this and you're uh you know you're stressed out I think one of the most valuable things you can do is think about well well what are some ways to reduce my stress I mean that's a prep. You know, that really, and it might
0: be a major career shift. I mean, I had to do it. I I believe that by forty five, had I continued in corporate America, I would have had my heart blow up.
1: Yeah, I've heard I you really say did. that, and that's a that's a perfect example. And for me, it was similar. I mean, I I as much as I loved financial markets, and I still do. Um, I hated that world. I I hated the the trips to New York and and uh, all the you know fawning and, and the culture of, you know, I mean, it was like I mean, you can imagine what it was like. It was highly stressful, highly, I would say, amoral or you know, I mean, it didn't fit me. I hated it. Um, you
0: constantly have to pretend to be friends with people you'd prefer not to even share oxygen with. I mean, that's the best way that I can put it.
1: Yeah, yeah not not always, but yeah, but yes. <laughs> Sometimes. Even having to do that once to me was, uh, you know, or every so often, you know, um, was was a struggle. And uh, the, the culture of, of my office and the people I worked with, I mean, nice guys, but just I hated it. I hated it, you know, um, and uh, I, I couldn't continue. I, I mean, I think I would have died just like you. I, I had yeah. to make the shift. And I mean... It's one year on. I moved to Wisconsin a year ago. And, I mean, you just have to take my word for it, but I am a completely different person. And so, I mean, if I could say something in terms of, of personal experience, in terms of preps, I mean, this was this was the most important decision I ever made, and it had nothing to do with a, a CME. Um, now, I'm probably better equipped to deal with the CME now, right? But I guess the, the point that I'm trying to make is, is focus on what decisions you can make that are actionable and that are actually going to affect, uh, uh, you know, your life in a positive way, and 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 realize that we tend to over over predict, we tend to be overconfident in in predicting events. Okay, so we tend to give estimates that are too high, mm-hmm. and we tend to focus on things that. Need the least amount of our focus because we've been focusing on them for so long. We need to look at the thing that we have been avoiding, and and that could actually change our lives in a major way. So that's that's kind of like trying to tie together some of these ideas. Now, some uh, you know, some of them are analogies, not strict um, strict one-to-one you know correspondence with the, with what we do in our business. But I think that I think that uh, the general concepts are, are right there.
0: See, and this is why I've always said that we don't prepare for events. We don't prepare for a tornado. We don't prepare for a flood. We don't prepare for a wildfire. We don't prepare for an economic collapse. What we prepare for is the commonality. okay? And the commonality is that the systems of support that we've come to depend on become unavailable. So that's that's my three parts to the foundation of the show is is the inverse relationship. So we've got probability versus impact scale, but the the, the mediator between the two is commonality. So if you see a disaster like the Haitian earthquake and the and the people come on and say we need donations, what do they say? We need we need food, water, medicine, comfort items, and and so blankets and stuff, right? So and then if you see uh, people in more Oklahoma, well, what do they need right now? Food, water, uh, energy. So they have the same needs, even though yeah. the disasters are dramatically different. And if you look at a nation like the Soviet Union, when it went through its own economic collapse, those very things, in, in a totally different way, became the things that were most important. So... If we say all of these things that could happen are interesting topics of discussion, they spur our creativity, they make us say what if, how would I, they lead us to solutions, but for that purpose alone, they're useful, and other than that, we set them up on a shelf over here, and we'll talk about them from time to time to re-stir those juices, and then let's just focus on how we establish ourselves to deal without the systems of support for those six primary needs and become as resilient and redundant as possible in those six needs. And it doesn't matter whether it's a pandemic or a economic crisis that causes the solution. As long as you're not hit by the first rock and taken out, you have the tools now to deal with the crisis.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, um, and, and this goes back to, you know, what I was saying kind of at the beginning that, um, we need to separate out uh, what's fun to think about, which is prepping for you know the major disasters and, and being the hero of the story that uh, you know rides in and saves the day. That's fun and it's also useful because, as you point out, it can it can uh, direct us toward where we can uh, improve our improve our preparations. But at, at the end of the day, there tend to be very low likelihood events, so we we need to make sure we're separating. Out what we do for fun, with what we do for, with, for seriousness. If you're living in a big city and you hate your job and you hate your life, there are alternatives. There really are. You know, and, um, and, and that's actually the most important decision facing you right now, with a high likelihood. I mean, you can't say that with certainty, but with a high likelihood. So, um, yeah, that's my two cents on that.
0: Yeah, and I think the, the 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 real high likelihood is you're going to deal with something. Yep. Right. I mean that's that's the high probability. You're going to deal with something and and you and I might deal with totally different things. I'm in Texas here in Wisconsin. Right? So right. so we but we're probably both going to have to deal with something you know, at least minor in the next year and probably at least something major in our the entirety of our life walk. We're going to have some major thing and what could be major for a person may still look like a small impact scale. It may not be the whole world is burning, but it can still be a major, major knockdown blow if they're not prepared. Two people that go through a job loss. One person's debt-free. Uh, they live within their means. They have savings. Um, that person, it can actually be a blessing for. It, it could be the last thing. It could have been like you or me. They needed to quit. And they just couldn't bring themselves to do it. Mm-hmm. And they're when they're prepared for it, and they lose it, they go, you know what? I'm gonna go have a beer tonight, not to drown my sorrows, but celebrate my new life. Another person, it can mean bankruptcy, it can mean living on the street, it can mean an emotional hit from that that they might not never ever recover from. It could, it, there are people that, that you know basically drift on streets and end up in homeless shelters today that at one time had good solid jobs and. They just lived in a way with so little resiliency, exactly. they mentally never recovered from it. I was
1: just going to bring up that word again, because, I mean, when I, when I think about the, the communities in, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I, did, I haven't ever lived in the Horn of Africa, so I don't know exactly what they're going through. but when I imagine why these communities uh, struggle so much when they're hit by a drought, it's... It's for exactly the reason that they're not resilient, and and um, and when we when we look at the, uh, you know, I brought up the principles of, of permaculture. I think the the second one is um, uh, store energy and right? something like that. It's like
0: uh, catch and store energy,
1: catch and st- catch and store energy, right? So that's all about um, you know making hay while the sun shines. So you're putting you're putting assets aside so that you can deal with problems when. Uh, when there's bad times, and then I think the third one is like uh, obtain a yield, right? So similar, similar sorts of ideas. Where uh, if, if you're setting yourself up, living by these principles, um, you're gonna be resilient. Um, but everybody's into everybody is gonna be different, as you said. Like living in Texas is different than living in Wisconsin, which is different than living in Somalia. You, you each have to design the plan around what your life looks like. But that idea of, of resiliency, I think, is, is very important and very, very tied into permaculture.
0: And I think it's the part of why we're so vulnerable because of the recent things. Like I just had a thing on where uh, they had this, this big outage in, uh, in, in Minneapolis-St. Paul area, like 650,000 people. Uh-huh. And the one guy said to his sister that had wrote, wrote in, well, what would happen if this type of an outage, you know, lasted a week and a half or something like that, happened in the middle of one of our winters? And her response was, well, we don't get storms this bad in the winter. Oh, gosh. And you just, really? That's your plan? (laughs) Your plan is it just won't happen. Um, That doesn't really work out very well. It's it's the plan that a lot of people have had, and it it generally ends in tears.
1: Right,
0: right. So, yeah, resiliency's got to be huge. Now, you say that nothing is immeasurable or intangible.
1: Well, that's the claim. Yeah. Yeah so i i mean that's where that's where doug Doug Hubbard who uh, wrote how to measure anything basically made his uh, made his fame was was uh, with that concept um, basically uh virtually anything that is worth measuring has some observable consequence so i i mean I guess there are nonsense things that you could that you could say that wouldn't be measurable but if there's something that you can think of that you imagine that that um, matters in your life well then um it has to be measurable because it's just really a matter of eliciting whatever scenario it is that you're thinking of so i mean like i I guess we we play stump the speaker um sometimes and and i don't know about doing it on i guess this isn't live radio though so if i (laughs) yeah. <laughs>
0: well, I mean, I actually I actually agree with you. Okay. So, I mean, I'm not only going to try so hard to stump you because I actually agree with you. See, I dealt with this from a standpoint of being in, in Internet marketing
1: uh-huh.
0: and, and, and and having companies from small to large and saying, well, what's your value per visitor to your site? Uh And they'd say, well, that's not possible to computate because we sell things of all different prices and we have all these different objectives. Sometimes our objective is just to get them into a mail list and all. And I would go through it and say, look, if we take all of the factors into consideration, go through all your analytics, we can quantify the value of every action based on your your end of year total sales and margins.
1: Therefore, we we know that a visitor
0: is worth X, that a subscriber is worth Y, that a Facebook friend is worth Z. And we can actually quantify all of this. So I dealt with that. So I know yeah, what you're
1: saying, well, and you can actually disprove them very quickly. So if you say, what was the example? We don't. There's, we can't measure the value of
0: a visitor to our site, and they're, big, to our they're site. and then okay. their silver bullet would be, well, our traffic comes from all different sources.
1: Okay, well, so, we, so the, way to, the way to the way to disprove that is is to say, well, um, I guess I'm going to guess it's worth zero, or
0: I'm going to yeah. guess it's
1: worth negative one dollar. What do you think? Is that right or wrong, yeah. and they'll say, yeah. "Well, that's wrong." Okay, I'm going to guess that it's worth five hundred thousand dollars per visitor. Is that right or wrong? Well, obviously that's wrong. Okay, well, so then you do know something about it. You just have uncertainty.
0: Correct. So I mean, that's what it always comes down to.
1: Yeah, and and then um, as far as measuring something like that, uh, you know, I, I think I think it would be pretty uh, pretty easy in terms of. Uh, I mean the first thing we would do with something like that is is kind of decompose um, a variable like uh traffic to a site um, because well for traffic to a site that's pretty easy because what you're really looking for is an observable consequence like click through to something that they buy yeah so if you can measure that then you can put a dollar value on it so that's that's a pretty easy one um Facebook friend is a is a little bit uh, more difficult, or things... I mean, I can imagine things in social media that would be difficult. uh, They're not
0: really as hard as you would think, because it's the same way that McDonald's gets the term goodwill on their balance sheet to equal $30 billion, or whatever it is. Uh Because, in in the words of Gary Vaynerchuk, what's the value of your mother, right? So, when you have these interactions at a social media level as a company... That's your goodwill in, in today's world. There's there's definitely a value there, and in the end, you can you can even track that. I mean, you, oh sure, yeah. It's actually, like, it's actually such a layup when people say that because I can say, well, uh, looking at your site, you have X number of people that came through from Twitter, Y number that converted, Z's your your margin and sales rate, and that means that your value of a a t- Twitter follower is is Z. And they'll say, well, but. Uh, they might not buy again. And I'll say, yes, and we'll calculate your numbers again next year based on your growth and, and, and your traffic sources and how the platform evolves. So the reason I brought that up is to make it complicated. It's actually to say how simple it is even when people think it's not. The only thing I could think of that would be hard to quantify would be um, emotions for others. So can I quantify my happiness? Yes. Can you quantify my happiness? I don't think so.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, the, uh, again, there, there have to be observable consequences. Um, so if I'm trying to quantify your happiness, I would need to ask you questions about, um, like preference. So, you know, would you rather, so it's, yeah, I'm not going to be able to, to like guess it. I can put a range on, on how much I think it's worth based on my own experience and, and based on, you know, something like that. But in order, to get, yeah, in order for me to guess what happiness means to you, I need to see some of your actions. Because some of your actions are going to lead towards happiness, and some of them are going to lead toward other things that you value. Do you follow me?
0: Yeah, I mean, so, I'm thinking about it this way. So one day, my wife was watching freaking Oprah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm going to have a sandwich for lunch, so I'm going to sit down and watch over it too and try not to be a jerk about it, you know. And she has this guy on that's calculated who the happiest people in the world are based on their countries. And of course, it's old so the message is socialism is good for us. So I think the happiest country was supposedly Denmark, and they were very happy about some stupid marginal tax rate of about 70%. And they lived in these small houses, but everybody had what they needed, and, and, and the people in Denmark were the happiest people in the world. And my thought was, well, what you did is calculate, do they have food, do they have water, do they have a place to live, and do they generally not bitch? But nobody necessarily went and asked a person in Denmark and said, how happy are you really about this, and did you even know what the alternative was, and how much happier that might make you? Because you could say whatever you want about, well, they're happier than people in the United States, but you don't see generally a shitload of people from this country – trying to get a passport and move to Denmark. Right. Right? But you do see a lot of people from all over the world killing themselves even now still to come here. Right. So how do we quantify that? To me, you don't. That's individualized, right? Which is why I believe in liberty. That way you can choose your own path to your own personal happiness. But that's about it. If somebody says to me, well, you can't calculate... um with uh, the right number of MREs for us to include in our food storage preparation is. I'd say, of course you can. I'm going to look at your budget. I'm going to look at your food preferences. I'm going to look at food allergies. I'm going to look at your storage space availability, what you eat every day, how much you can store of that, what you can store from long term. And I'm going to say that and this is the role that they play. And, of course, I can calculate that. So, I mean, I think that's probably like the kind of thing you were going to want me to stump you on. And I'm thinking, no, uh, or, I, I, yeah, I think or I get like it.
1: The value of a yeah. human life is one that comes up. Okay,
0: there you go. That's that's an interesting one. The value yeah, of a yeah. human life.
1: Yeah, and I that's, mean, I think I think there's a you know you can poke holes in in um, in any way of measuring things, but there's uh, actions that we take like in terms of our our budget, um, where we choose one thing, say going to a doctor for a certain condition, or we choose not to do one thing. And, each, and and then we can attach a probability that that thing extends your life. so that's how we measured uh, we did a, well, that's actually we didn't do it, um, but it's other research is they essentially calculate the um, amount people are willing to spend for a marginal increase in probability of, of a life. Does that make sense? So if you could yeah. increase your chance of living by one in a thousand? How much would you spend on that? Um, same as like a like a vaccine, right? I mean, uh, you actually have a chance, uh, like a $1 million chance every day of dying. Okay, so it's not like it's a risk riskless. You have this this probability of dying every day. So you can attach how much people will spend to increase by some tiny amount, and then uh, you actually want to do it with different amounts. So if you would increase it by say a hundredth of a percent. A tenth of a percent, one percent. you can imagine scenarios for each of those where you're going to increase your chance of survival by each of those uh, amounts. Once you've attached the dollar amounts to that, you can extrapolate up to hundred hmm. percent. So that's how that would be the
0: value the individual subjectively puts on their own life.
1: Yeah and, and right that, that's one of the, um, one of the objections is that it's going to be different for each person
0: and that's true but it'll average out if we do 10,000 people.
1: Yeah, The right, exactly. The average is between two and $10 million.
0: That's interesting. You know, there was a movie kind of like this. I don't remember what it was called. It was one of those movies I'm probably never going to see, but it was a scenario where, like, this totalitarian government had taken over and decided there were too many people and we lived too long. Mm-hmm. So the solution was, I don't remember, I, don't, I have no idea, but let's say everybody gets to live 28, 28 years, years. Yeah. or whatever.
1: Was it 28 yeah. years? I think, yeah, there was a movie that I saw where, where you lived to okay. 28 and then you started having to pay.
0: Yeah, and then you could also buy time from someone else who would sell their time.
1: Right. And it became yeah.
0: a currency. That's right. And that's kind of what you're talking about there is a, you know, a, a graphic illustration of that. If, if you could buy another year and you were only 28 years old, how much would you spend for it?
1: Right. right. Yep. And, of
0: course, that gets down to do you have it?
1: <laughs> well yeah and that's and that's why it's different for each person because somebody who's worth um say a billion dollars or a hundred million dollars you know their the value that they're gonna put on their life is higher, so you get into some sticky issues there just because there's a a question of affordability,
0: but I think you're right on most other things, and I think it doesn't even matter if it's in, if that's the entire point is that it's individualized,
1: yep it, right? exactly. Yes, right. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean. It's, it's a prep, if I'm a doing a calculation, calculation. You can still measure it, right? It's just, yeah. It's just different for everybody.
0: So that, that's an interesting way to think about deciding what the next prep is, what the next training is, what the next skill set development is. But I think you do have to throw that enjoyability quotient in there as well. And um, what value does the action or training or skill give you when nothing goes wrong as well? So absolute, if I have absolute, a garden, great, great I have point. great food, even if I don't have to have it. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And then what, yes. what, what's my value of my life as well on that, right? Because I'm eating better food, higher quality, food, more nutritionally dense food, and I'm getting the activity level and the de-stress level as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. right. I mean, and that's what, when I was – I started to design this model, right, because I want to I complete a model that people could use. Um, and I realized that a lot of the reason to be prepared, for me at least, really came down to things that I didn't even really think about, like an increased sense of community, their exercise, good health, uh, reduced stress, you know, reduced anxiety from feeling unprepared, less unnecessary trips to the grocery store, and so you know, all of those things may not prevent you from dying if we have a, a worst-case scenario. But that doesn't mean that they're valueless. You just, you just have to put that against. So if, if you die, you can think of that as some dollar value, you know, X. Or if you, you know, you don't have to think in terms of money, too, if you don't want to. But um, what I'm saying is those things are worth something, even in relation to your death, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Because who you're leaving behind. Yeah. I mean, yep. that's, that's a big part. Of it. And, I mean, the one thing we all have to do is so that we don't become obsessed with survival uh which is kind of weird for a survivalist to say that but but it's true we can become obsessed with survival is except the fact that's the absolute reality it's not if you die it's when we're all we're all mortal yes we're not going to live forever, and there's, there's going to be no major life – I can tell you this with pretty high probability – no major life-extending revelations that are going to come around for, you know, soon enough for any of us to live to be bicentennial man and 200 years old the way Robert Williams' robot was, right? right. We're, 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 you're not going to be 200 years old. Yeah. Now, you, we may extend human lifetimes by 10, 15, 20 years in a, in a significant time frame that may matter to some people here, maybe but you're still dead in the end. So we can't be so obsessed with, well, what if, what if, what if, because what if tomorrow I'm on my way to the store to pick up a a T for PVC pipe and I get hit by a gravel truck? Yep. Well, I'm dead. That's the answer. And there's so I actually have to have contingencies for dying, like life insurance. Yep, yep.
1: Yeah, and, and, and so this comes back again to the point that if some of our, some of our work as preppers, I think, is is not fun. It's thinking about things that are uncomfortable, or it's making choices that are uncomfortable. Like, I'm going to give something up to increase. I'm going to give up a dream maybe, or I'm going to give up a standard of living. It, but to do that, I'm doing that because then I um, then I have a greater chance of survival, and or then I'm actually leading a life that's closer to the one I actually want to be leading. So, you know, we we, we do have to think about uncomfortable things. Um, and, and for everybody, you know, they're going to have different things that are uncomfortable. And and I guess the last thing I'd say about the measurement inversion is just, I think each one of us benefits from going into that dark place and, and looking at the thing we don't want to look at. That might be the place where, you, you know, you could see the most benefit in your life by looking at that thing.
0: I agree with that. Well, I mean, we've we've rounded out well past an hour. We're almost at an hour and a half, so we're <laughs> going to have to wrap here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I tell you what we could do. We could have uh, members of the audience uh, go by the site for this okay. episode. And since I didn't try to stump you, maybe they can. Okay. And they can give you some stuff in the comments section that they think can't be measured or cal- cal- calculated. And uh, we'll see if one of them can do it.
1: Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, the other thing I was thinking is of, Offering some sort of like uh, like a book the, his book is real doug's book is real popular um how to measure anything um, and or one of our uh, calibration webinars they're um, they they're kind of pricey, but I have some latitude in terms of uh giving one away uh you know now now and again so um, i it's I haven't heard you recently uh you know do giveaways. So I'm I'm not sure how if you've gone away from that. But uh you know, I was thinking along those lines if you were interested in that. So
0: Yeah, I mean if you want to give away a couple books or something or a seat at one of these webinars, that's that's however however you want to do, or however many or what quantity you want to do is fine. I mean uh you tell me and I'll I'll well, run it why don't the, we say
1: uh why don't we say one and one? So there's a book and there's a webinar
0: One book one web Okay, here's how I'm going to do this then. Um, to enter this contest, make a comment on this episode. And uh, I will let that run through uh, the end of the day. And I will close the comments temporarily just for so I don't get confused. I will count the total number of comments on this episode. And then I will throw th- that number into a random number generator and generate two different numbers. And the people that comment on those two numbers... We'll get one or the other. We'll do the book first and the web second. And to make your life easier and get your prize, no one will see it but me. Please use a real and true and correct email address when you make a comment because if I get a bounce, I will give it to the next person. So there we go. So make a comment in today's episode in the show notes at the survivalpodcast.com to be entered to win a copy of the book, which is How to Measure Anything, is that correct? That's right. Or a webinar uh, with the calibration 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 webinar. So
1: So in three hours, you you can be trained to correctly uh, predict your uncertainty. That's what that is.
0: Great. So
1: that's cool. And the company is Hubbard Research, right? Hubbard Decision Research, and the website is hubbardresearch.com.
0: Okay, I'll have a link to that. you've got a little blog, too. I'll throw a link in the show notes, too. It's, it's really not on this stuff. It's more on the homesteading stuff. I was taking checking, home, checking that out right before I called you. So, uh, hey, man, I appreciate you being with us today, Matt.
1: Yeah, it was great fun. Thanks for having me.
0: Folks, with that, this has been uh, Jack Spears along with Matthew Miller helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. times we forget we are what we eat. I
1: don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I could do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better